The New Testament reading is from Mark 10, 32 through 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want to do whatever, want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at, the, at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. I want to read another verse for you really quickly. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Does anybody know who said that? Anybody remember? Close. It was John. John said that. John said that. The same guy who in the passage we just read is scheming with his brother to try and find out how they can get the highest place among the disciples. Not just the highest place among the disciples, but the highest place that exists in all of the universe. That's what he was looking for. And just a few years later, He is the person preaching that the way we love one another is by laying down our lives. How does that happen? How does that kind of dramatic change take place in a person's life, in a person's character, in their sense of purpose? Well, the answer is that's what God does. That is what God is in the business of doing. He's in the business of taking people who are selfish, ordinary people, people who are messed up sinners, people who are concerned with themselves only, and transforming us to be like Jesus. That's what God does. He takes sinners 
and he makes them like Jesus. And that's what I want us to think about today. That's what I want us to look at. I want us to look at ourselves this morning as we look at this story about James and John. And as we look at this story, as we look at ourselves, I want us to see a few things. First, that all of us have this misguided instinct for glory-seeking. That's the first point. All of us have a misguided instinct for glory-seeking. And secondly, Jesus says that the true path to greatness, the true path to glory, comes through being a servant. And then after we look at both of those things, the last thing I want us to see this morning is that only Christ can change us. Only Christ can take us from our normal way of thinking to his way of thinking. Only Christ can take us from thinking about our own glory to living like a servant. So let's talk about this. We, we have this misguided instinct for glory seeking. If you know, we have been preaching through the book of Mark this winter, and we are at this place near the middle of the book where the disciples are wrestling with this disparity. On one hand, they have this notion in their head of a Messiah, of the Christ and who he is supposed to be, that Christ is going to be a conquering king who comes into the world to set everything right. And then they have Jesus, who they have seen is the Christ, and yet he keeps saying that he's going to die, that he's going to suffer, that things aren't going to go the way they expect. And at the beginning of our passage, those words that we read uh, say just that much. It says in verse 33, if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible sitting right next to you, take it home with you. That can be yours. We want everybody to have one. Verse 33, Mark chapter 10, it says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. This is actually the third time that Jesus has said this. The third time in three chapters, Jesus has repeated this over and over and over again, and every time he says it, the disciples follow up, showing that, that they don't understand at all. They follow up with some act of kind of foolishness, or ignorance. Uh, and it says for, for us right here that there's a little bit of difference. This is the first time he has mentioned Jerusalem. This is the first time he has told the guys where they are headed. And it seems like that might be a trigger for them. It might have alerted them to something. At first, it tells us that, that he's they're all afraid. They are struck with fear as Jesus tells them what he's about to do. They're fearful because he's so resolute that he has determined that this is where they are headed and where they are going. But it doesn't take long before James and John, two of the disciples, start to think about that and they start to scheme. They realize they're going to Jerusalem, the capital, the seat of power. That's where everything that's where everything flows out of. That's where the king is supposed to reign. And so they, they start to plot. They start to scheme. They start to think about conquest again. And they come to him with this question. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us 
whatever we ask of you. I mean, even the way that they introduce the question, right? It, it tells you they know they're asking for something they don't deserve, right? That's not how you ask for something normal. That's the way children ask you to eat ice cream for breakfast, right? Promise me whatever I say, you're going to give it to me. And of course, Jesus responds like a parent responds. He just ignores that part. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> tell, tell me what you want me to do for you. That's what he says. And they give this answer they give. Guys, it should blow you away. They say, grant us to sit at your right hand and your left in your glory. They ask for glory. They ask for preeminence. They are thinking it through and they know in their heads, well, we can't be higher than Jesus, but they want to be higher than everybody else. It, I mean, it's incredible, right? Can you imagine this? It is, it, it, just try to wrap your head around what they are asking. They are asking to be considered more highly than everyone else in the universe. <laughs> they want to be next to Jesus for eternity in his glory. I can't, I mean, that's pretty bold. We all have to admit that, right? In verse 41, it tells us that when the rest of the group hears about it, they are indignant. And we don't know why they're indignant. It doesn't say it exactly, but we do know the disciples. We have seen them all making this same mistake over and over again. And you kind of assume they're mad because they wanted to ask that question, right? Like, no fair. <laughs> I don't want to be number two. <laughs> but before you go judging them, right? Before we go thinking this is just so far beyond what a reasonable person would do, I think it's fair to say we're not much different. We're all like this. You know, I was looking at some uh, statistics, a report from the American Psychological Association that was saying that, that this current generation, millennials, uh, view fame above almost any other generation that's come before them. He said, it said that one-third of millennials would rather be famous than become a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, this thing said that money, fame, and image were some of the most important life goals, and the lower life goals were uh, ones concerned with affiliation with others, with community, with service. The same study said one out of ten people would give up their education, would give up the prospect of marriage, of having a family, if they knew that they could be famous. And you might hear that and you're like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Maybe you're like me, you're, you're turning your nose up at that. You don't want to be a YouTube star, right? But I think we are all like James and John. I think we all want to make our mark. I think we all want to be remembered. We want the world to know just how great we are, don't we? That's right, isn't it? Don't we think we're great? Don't we think that we deserve honor, that we deserve esteem? Now, we might turn up our nose at, at reality TV stars, but there are plenty of ways that we live in that pursuit of praise, in the pursuit of other people's admiration and honor. Maybe the most common place you see it is, is not in these outward pursuits, but, but on the inside, how, how quick we are to feel 
disrespected. How easily we react when we feel like we are being underestimated. Right? We may not go around blatantly trying to exalt ourselves, but we are, are quick to get irritable with people when they don't consider us. I, I, will, not, I will never forget, um, I guess it was a couple of years ago now, I was driving my friend's car up Green Street in JP, and I got up to center, and if you're familiar, that stoplight there sometimes just takes forever. And so I'm, I, I get there, I'm the first car in line, you know, the light turns for me, and the car behind me starts honking, they really need to get around me or something, and so I pull up a little, and the guy goes around and he turns to the right. But now I'm like halfway in the crosswalk, you know, just waiting for the light to change. And this woman comes up, it's summertime, the windows are down, and she is indignant. She is so upset with me that I would have the audacity not to have anticipated her arrival and to be partially blocking the crosswalk for her. And what was funny, I told you I was driving somebody else's car, and so as she walked in front, this guy was a veteran, and she saw that he had veteran plates. And all of a sudden, I guess she just really respects veterans. <laughs> she was cussing me out and looked down and then started apologizing. So, oh, 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 I'm so sorry. I, thank you for your service. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'll, uh, and she just walked on. <laughs> now, later when I returned my friend's car, I did thank him for his service. I'm not personally a veteran. I was like, that was great. Um, we think a lot of ourselves. We think people should think a lot of us. And I don't want to give you the perspective that I'm so much better than that woman. Even just this week, I got really irritated because Melissa sided with Ruby about something. <laughs> and I, I, I was shocked that she had the audacity not to presume that I'm right. We are quick to do that, aren't we? We're quick to snap at our roommates and our spouses when we don't think we're getting the respect we deserve. We might not want to be famous, but nobody wants to be low. We don't want to be disregarded. We want to be great. Why is that? Well, the biblical answer is, we want glory because we were made by a glorious God. We want glory because we were made in the image of a glorious God. We don't want to be small because deep down we know that we were made for eternity. We were made for a relationship with Him that would last forever. We aren't meant to fade into nothing. Our glory seeking, all of that stuff, is just misfires of what's deep inside of us. It is this attempt to find significance apart from the source. It's our attempt to be great apart from God. That hunger that James and John are expressing, that glory hunger, is something we all have. But it won't be satisfied through self-assertion. It never is, right? And thankfully, Jesus tells us that right here. He shows us that the true path to greatness, this is the second point, the true path to greatness is through servanthood. So Jesus, he turns down these guys' requests by saying this, verse 38, if you're looking along. You know not what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He says, you don't know what you're asking for. And listen, 
That is a huge understatement. These guys, when they think of Christ, when they think of the Messiah in his glory, they are thinking of a throne room. They are thinking of a, of a huge feast table where the room is filled with dignitaries and nobles, where military leaders flanking his sides. They're thinking of this great celebration. That is the image of the Christ in his glory. But Jesus knows that his glory is not like the world's glory at all. That his glory is only going to come through tremendous suffering. He knows that the moment of his greatest glory, the person on his right and the person on his left are going to be guilty criminals being crucified. But notice here, he doesn't shut down their hopes entirely. When they come to him with this absurd question that they don't understand at all, he doesn't say, there are no great people in the kingdom. Did you notice that? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say there are no great people in the kingdom. Stop worrying about it. Move on. No, he says this, verse 42. You know that the Gentiles, those who are considered rulers, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. He doesn't tell them to stop seeking a place of preeminence. He actually affirms their desire to lead in his kingdom. After all, they're apostles. That's what he has called them for. But he says, you are not going to become great in the kingdom of God by clawing your way to the top. You are not going to become great in my kingdom the way you become great in the world. The greatest in my kingdom are servants. And, you know, I realize, even as I say it, it doesn't really sound radical to us anymore. We have kind of accepted this. In recent years, actually, this has become kind of a buzzword in the business world. Servant leadership is a, is a great idea. It seems like uh, people are figuring out that being a jerk is not the best way to be a boss. <laughs> that maybe it's helpful to be kind of humble and, and to be nice to other people. In at the University of Virginia in their business school, uh, one of the best schools in the world, the Darden School of Business, they have a class called Servant Leadership, A Path to High Performance. We, we kind of have accepted this notion in a general way, but I want to say what Jesus is saying here is still different than that. When the business schools talk about service, servant leadership, they are talking about being a servant so that you will be quicker to achieve the same goals everyone else has. Being a servant so you can be more successful. Being the servant so that your church, will, your, your, your business can become more glorious, so that things can grow, so that you can become rich. It's just a more efficient path. That's what they're selling it as. But folks, that is the opposite of what Jesus means here. That is the opposite of what Jesus means when he says you need to become a servant. In verse 42, when he says the, the Gentiles rule it over them, he's trying to point that out. He's trying to point out the irony in James and John's request. Do you see it? These guys, they hated the Roman government. They hated their oppression. They hated their injustice. And, and for good reason. 
They did some horrible things to the Jewish people. But as they were hating their ruling, they were just plotting how they could become the rulers instead. How they could assert their better authority over everyone else. But Jesus is saying, if you want real glory, you won't find it like that. If you want real glory, you have to give up on the world's values. You need an entirely different pursuit. Do you hear me? Our hunger for glory can only be met when we stop trying to build up our greatness and instead start resting in the glory and the supremacy of God. I'll I'll say that again. Our, Our hunger for glory can only be met when we stop trying to build up our own greatness and we start resting in the greatness and the glory of God. Jesus says that the great men and the great women in my kingdom delight in their leastness and their lastness. In serving. For serving's sake. Not because eventually it's going to pay dividends. Right? When you serve just to get something in the end, you're really still serving yourself. But he says, the service in my kingdom is a service that costs you. Paul when he described the ministry of the apostles a few years down the road, he said, this is what it was like to be an apostle. I think that God has made us apostles last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools, for Christ's sake. But you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger, we thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and we still are, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Those are the men that built the church. Those are the leaders that Christ has called. You see, the message of Jesus turns the world's values on its head. He says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then you pursue sacrifice and service. If you want to follow me, you can't live for your own glory. You must live for God's glory. You can't pursue lifting yourself above people anymore. You need to rejoice in being low. R.C. Sproul, I think he put it really well. After looking at what this text really means, he said, I do not like this verse. (laughs) I tend to agree. He said, in my heart, I like to be served rather than to serve. But Jesus will have none of that. He said that if we want to be great, we must be small. If we want to be exalted, we must be abased. If we want to rule, we must serve. That is the ethic of Jesus. We're called to die to our deep instincts for greatness. Folks, I want to point out too that when Jesus says this, he uses the language of servant. He uses the language of slave when he tries to tell us exactly what he wants us to do. 
Why does he say that? Well, it's because serving people is easy when you're doing it on your own terms. Serving people is easy when you're the one ultimately who's calling the shots, right? It's one thing for you to go serve at the soup kitchen on Saturday when you serve on your own terms. It's another thing for someone to come to you on a Friday night and need your time and need your energy and need you to put down what you had planned to do to help them. It's one thing to stay up late cleaning the dishes to help out your family because, well, you also want to like, watch something on Netflix and have some alone time. <laughs> it's another thing when my wife asked me to change my plans, to come home early, to do something to help her out when it impinges upon what I wanted to do. It's one thing for us to, to post racially progressive views on Facebook. But it's another thing to actually change the way that you spend your time. The people who you associate with, to build genuine relationships, to cross cultural boundaries, to get to know and love your neighbors who are different from you. Amen? The greatest in the kingdom are the people who lay down their rights with joy. Who sacrifice their time, who sacrifice their energy, their schedule, their preferences for the good of others. So how are you doing with that? Are you a person who is living, trying to be first, or trying to be last? How do you respond when someone isn't taking consideration of you? How do you respond when somebody asks you to surrender your preferences or change your schedule? Do you love people in a way that actually costs you something? Or do you serve on your own terms? Do you ever give knowing that you will get nothing? Or is all of your service a means to another end? Do you rejoice in being low? All right, one last question. As I ask all of those, let me ask you this one. How would your spouse respond if she were asked that question about you? How would your roommate respond? How would your coworkers respond? Folks, we have this deep and misguided instinct for glory. But the true path to greatness in Christ's kingdom is through servanthood. So how are we going to do that? How do we become servants? This is the third thing I want to say. How do we change? Well, the answer I told you at the beginning is only Christ can change us. This stuff is too deep. It's too deep inside of us. We can't do this on our own. Christ needs to come and change us. And that's why we need to take the rest of our time here and look at this very last verse. Verse 45. It is the most important verse in this passage, and you know what? It might be the most important verse in this book. It says, For even the Son of Man came to, not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Look, every phrase in that verse is important. In fact, you should go memorize this verse right now. It's not long. <laughs> 
Go home, memorize it. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is dropping bombs in this verse. This is huge. Just let's, let's take it a little bit at a time. He says, even the Son of Man came. Do you know what he's talking about? This is the second time in our passage he's used this term, Son of Man. The Son of Man, it was one of Jesus' favorite ways to refer to himself. And he was pointing back to this very famous prophecy in the book of Daniel. It goes like this. Daniel chapter 7. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. That's God. He came to God, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the coming Messiah, the King where everybody bows down before Him and Jesus is saying, the Son of Man has come. He says, that's me. I'm right here. I am the Son of Man that you've been waiting for. But then He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve the most glorious figure in the universe. The only one who actually gets what we desire. The only one who actually deserves to have his desires met. To get his way. The one who, his very existence is associated with all of creation bowing down before him. And he says, he has come to earth to serve. Now, I know we live in a fairly egalitarian society now. We don't have kings and queens. We don't have a separate class of people. We think we can talk to anybody we want to. You know, we, we cuss at the president on Twitter. You know, we don't live in the same kind of world that Paul wrote in. But I, I still think there are times when we know someone shouldn't be serving. I just watched um, a clip. You know, I don't know, Melissa and I, we we had access to cable and we spent like 30 minutes trying to figure out how to find something to watch. And for about five minutes, we watched uh, David Letterman winning the Mark Twain Award. I have no idea when this happened. I think it was recently. It's a prize for comedy. Um, and I was struck by how this room, it was a huge auditorium and it was full of people who uh, loved David Letterman. And I, look, I count myself amongst them. I think David Letterman's great. All these people were praising him. He's their comedy hero. They were there to, 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 they were there for him that night. But I was thinking, you know, what if as they were all arriving, he said, actually, you know, you guys do this whole thing without me. I'm just going to go stand at the door. I'll be the valet. It would be totally inappropriate, right? The night was there for him. The, a bride at her wedding shouldn't be serving tables at the reception. We know there are times when someone is not supposed to serve. Well, when the Son of Man comes to earth and he says, I'm here to serve, that should shock us. I'm here to take the lowest place. I'm here to forfeit my well-being for yours. I'm going to be the waiter tonight. 
But not only that, he says the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that's where the fire is. That is the explosive part of the verse. We're, that's the theme, right? What did Jesus come to do? Well, here's the answer. Jesus says very clearly he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. A ransom. That is a loaded word. Think about that. We don't use that word much. We use that word to talk about, what, kidnappings and hostage situations. But Jesus, he chose that word on purpose because it tells us something. It tells us first about our position. We are not free. We are captives. We are captives of sin and death. We cannot simply try harder to be better. We can't try to stop seeking our own glory and fix that problem because we are not free. Our sin has separated us from God forever and we, there is nothing we can do. We cannot possibly pay the debt. Ransom, it communicates our position. And secondly, ransom, it communicates that there is a cost involved here. Our sin, our selfishness, our glory seeking, all that stuff I've been talking about is not harmless. It's more than just a bad habit that you need to get over or grow out of. It is a symptom of a much deeper problem that goes all the way down to your soul. We have broken communion with God. And the price of restoration is more than we can afford. The cost of our sin, the Bible says, is death. And God sent Jesus to pay the price. God sent Jesus to pay the price on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. But still, ransom. Who did he pay the ransom to? That's an interesting question, right? I want to tell you, he didn't pay that ransom to Satan. That's not the case. The Bible doesn't say that on the cross, Jesus paid off the devil. No, it says on the cross, Jesus crushed Satan's head. That's really important. Jesus is not paying off the enemy. Jesus is paying off God. That's what Jesus is telling them about when he says, you don't know what it means to drink the cup or to be baptized like I'm going to be baptized. He's talking about drinking the cup of God's wrath, drowning in his judgment. On the cross, Jesus was paying that price that each of us will have to pay if we don't look to him. Once and for all, he emptied the cup. But, you know, we have to be careful even talking that way, right? Because then you're like, well, God's a jerk. <laughs> why did he do that to his son? Why, why would he make him do something like that? Well, look, this is complicated, but let me just say, we don't have three gods here. That's not our religion, right? We have one God and three persons. And this word ransom is an illustration that Jesus is using to help our little pea brains try to understand this cosmic transaction that was taking place. God isn't sitting far away watching. God is also on the cross paying for our sins. 
where you should have been. The glorious Son of Man, God Himself, set aside His glory for you. So hear this. Jesus does not say, if you follow Him, you will never have any glory. He says the very opposite. He says, if you surrender your glory, you will have all the glory. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is the first who became last. So that us, the last, the sinners, the weak, the imprisoned, the oppressed, could be treated like we were first. He has done it. Christ has paid your ransom And everyone who looks for him to salvation is made glorious. Do you remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist? He said John the Baptist was the greatest man who'd ever walked on the face of the earth. Those Amongst those born of women, there has been no one better. And then he said, but whoever is the least in my kingdom will be more glorious than him. And folks, when the Holy Spirit convinces you of that, When God speaks to you and tells you that this is the truth, He also changes your heart. The more we look to Jesus, the the more we see His glory, the less we feel like asserting the respect we deserve and the glory we deserve. Instead, we learn how to give up our rights. Instead, we learn how to show people Christ's love through our sacrifice. And like John was, we can be transformed from desperate, glory-hungry fools into humble servants. We can care for our spouses. We can be kind to our roommates. We can love the poor and welcome the stranger. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and what he's done for us. We can't truly understand it. The ideas are too big. But Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts so that even when we don't understand it, the world will see it and they will be persuaded of your glory and the satisfaction you offer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.